The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. So here at ICC, it's been a tradition on the first Sunday that I preach each year to cast a vision for that new year. This year, I've actually decided to expand my New Year message to several messages that are going to cover the month of January, where I want to explore Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. And so today, I will introduce the series with sort of a brief framework of putting a context to uh, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, where he lists the actual fruit of the Spirit. And then in the upcoming messages, I want to look in greater detail at the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're not going to look at each one week by week, because that'll take about three mo- uh, two and a half months or so. But I'm going to sort of make big, uh, kind of big picture summarizations of what the listing of those fruit uh, are all about, okay, in the upcoming messages. It's also been a tradition uh, for me at the start of these messages for the new year to show you like a year in review video. And I was actually going to do that together today, uh, but for the sake of time, I decided actually to nix it. And I know a lot of you love videos, and so I'm sorry if you feel gypped by that. But uh, I will send you a link to the video uh, if you want to watch it. Uh, the ones that I most commonly have shown you are the Google year in search videos, where Google basically takes all the top search terms for that year and uses it to create this montage of what that represents about, the, about our, our, our moment in history. And if, if you remember last year's Google video, it was a really dark one. It was, very, it was like, if you watched last year's video, it was as if all of the human race was emerging out of the caves in which we were all living in for the past year because of the pandemic. And, and the video was just exploring some really dark themes like, are we going to survive as a human race? And, and what does the future lie for us? But if you actually watch this year's Google video, it actually strikes a much more hopeful tone. But it's also unique in the sense that instead of looking at all these different terms that were searched, it basically is saying what we were searching for as a human race was maybe summarized by a singular theme, which was, can I change? Can I change? And if I can change, how does that change happen? Um, Really, in a way, that's the question we're asking, not just in 2022, but every year, isn't it? And what I find also interesting, if you watch the video, is that from the world's perspective, this idea of personal change is really a matter of choice. We decide the kind of person that we want to become. And it's often couched in the story of the triumph of the human spirit, isn't it? That... The way we tell the narrative is that this world is pushing me down or others are trying to bring me down. It's these external circumstances that are my barriers, but out of the triumph of my will, I can do whatever I set my mind to. Another way that we often phrase it from a worldly perspective is choosing to live your best life, choosing to live your best life. And while that message may be very inspirational, the question is, is it accurate? Well, I would argue that the Bible tells us actually a very different and a much more complex story about how real growth and transformation happens in our life. 
And I want to do so by looking at the way Paul frames this process of change and transformation. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 to 23, he writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. What Paul is basically saying is that the process of growth and change requires battle between two natures that are at war within our hearts. The process of growth and change is a process of battle. And on the one hand, we have the flesh, which is not referring to our physical bodies, but when Paul uses the word flesh, he is referring to our sin-desiring nature that is opposed to what God wants for us. In other words, what he's saying is that there are these corners of our hearts that are yet not fully yielded to God's leadership in our life. And in contrast to the flesh is a heart that is under the influence of the Spirit, which will result in us becoming more and more like Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that as followers of Jesus, you have both of these sides of you that are basically at war with each other inside your heart. And it creates for a very messy and confusing picture of the things that motivate us, doesn't it? What I'm saying is you can genuinely care about a friend and yet you can still struggle with jealousy or hatred against them. You can be very generous in your giving to the church or to the needs of others around you and yet still struggle with materialism, can't you? I can preach or counsel you out of a generous, genuine desire to see your spiritual growth. But the truth is, I can also do those very acts of righteousness and pastoral ministry because I enjoy the recognition the status and the power that my role as a pastor in this community affords me. And what I'm saying is when somebody questions our motives or calls us out on our inconsistencies, 
I think the truth is most of us are likely to become very defensive and feel misunderstood or unfairly attacked. But the Bible tells us that there is a war going on inside of your heart constantly. And that beyond our outward acts, our motives often are very mixed. And we are not likely to experience real change and deeper growth unless we can acknowledge the fact that these mixed motives exist in our heart. You may have genuinely good intentions, but there are also maybe ulterior motives that are driving you that you may not even fully realize. Think of statements like this. I only did it because I care for you. Are you sure? It was righteous anger. Really? If I was materialistic, would I give as much as I do to help others? Well, maybe. In other words, we need to be very careful about making statements like these that our good intentions basically refute any darker motives that we may have. What I want to do is to first look at this idea of life in the flesh, and then secondly, in this next part of the message, look at life in the spirit as just a broad framework. Before the coming weeks, we will look specifically at what the fruit of the spirit mean for the Christian life. If you look at verses 16 to 17, there's a key word that is used here that's very helpful for understanding what Paul is getting at. It says, I walk by the Spirit. I will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. That word desire is at the heart of understanding this battle between the flesh and the spirit. In the Greek, that word is epithumia, and it's an interesting word because it's a kind of a compound word. It takes the word thumia, which is the Greek word for desire, and then it adds to it this prefix epi, which is, means over or above. And when you combine the two, what Paul is saying is that this war of the flesh inside us is basically a war of over-desire. Or as D.A. Carson puts it, over-the-top all-consuming desire for something. In other words, it is not just about us desiring the wrong things in life, but even the good things like good food or sex or companionship or affirmation of others or financial security or these, these things that are not sinful in and of themselves, and yet when I overly desire them, in other words, I take them and make them to be the ultimate goals of my life, it goes beyond the boundaries that God has established for the enjoyment of these things. And that is the battle of the flesh. It's interesting, if you look at verses 19 to 21, what I've highlighted there in the orange text here, there are these obvious sins of the flesh. These are things that we would largely attribute to the world, to those outside the church like sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and drunkenness and orgies. And when he uses that word orgies, it's not talking about sexual orgies. It's, it's basically picturing a drunken party, okay? And we say, yeah, these things are obviously bad. But couched in the middle of those, sandwiched there, is another list of sins 
that I've highlighted in blue. And what I would argue is these are often found in religious contexts. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. In fact, those sins are ones that are filled in the New Testament addressed to the church in many of Paul's letters. And I think a point that needs to be made here is that the key distinction between a good heart and a bad heart is not about whether you are religious or non-religious, but about the deeper desires that are underneath everything you do. Another way that we can think about it is like this. Our darker desires are often masked by our religious practices. You know, a sin like witchcraft sounds like an archaic sin that none of us are guilty of possibly falling into. But if you really think about what is underneath the heart of witchcraft, it is basically using religious rituals to try to manipulate spiritual power to our advantage. And I think the truth is even the modern worshiper can struggle with that desire to try to use our faithfulness like tithing or church attendance as leverage with God. To say, if I do this for you, can you at least do this for me? And these sins like anger and hatred, dissension, jealousy, selfish ambition, they are very real problems in the church, aren't they? But the truth is, they are much harder to honestly deal with compared with sins like sexual immorality or drunkenness, which is so easy to attack if you don't struggle with them. Think of it like this. I don't think any Christian that gets involved in a church split starts off with the goal of destroying a church, do they? But maybe you are so consumed with your need to win an argument or to be found right in your position that what you end up doing is stirring dissension and factions in that church until ultimately, without you realizing, you have contributed to tearing this church apart. I don't think most Christians start off with the goal of destroying a person's reputation, but consumed by a hidden anger or envy or other insecurities. What you don't realize is that you are slandering or gossiping about this person behind their back so that at the end of that conversation with another person, you have in essence destroyed that person's reputation or in the least diminished that person's view in the eyes of others. And what Paul is getting at here, I think, is that these sins exist both inside and outside the church. And many of these needs and desires that we have may be legitimate, but when they control us, when they consume us, they can become incredibly destructive forces in our lives and in our community. As James Smith argues, at the heart of discipleship is the ability to address the desires that drive us. He writes in his book, You Are What You Love. Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us, precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. 
Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it, Proverbs 4.23. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. There is a very real temptation in the church to define our faith by our doctrine, the theological positions that we hold, the truths that we def defend, right? And doctrine, theology, they're important. That's why I've preached in recent days on these difficult topics like divorce and remarriage or abortion or women in leadership. And they we're wrestling with, what does the Bible teach about these things? What is the right doctrine? And our positions on matters like these matter. But there is also a danger in thinking that our agreement with certain doctrines defines and forms our faith. And I would argue the Bible really doesn't present faith from that framework. Because what the biblical picture of is, is much that we are desiring beings driven and defined by our loves. What are the longings in your heart? What do you love, in other words, defines you far more than what you think or what you believe? And if we don't acknowledge that our spiritual formation is primarily driven by these desires, our wants, then the truth is we are very likely to end up living a life that is very contrary to the things that you profess that you believe. And the data as it, as it examines the evangelical church in America is very clear that when it comes to how we spend our money, when we deal with issues of mental Ill health and when we're getting into issues of anxiety and depression and sexual immorality and materialism and our addiction to social media, the truth is there is very little statistical difference between the evangelical church and the people outside the church. Yes, we believe a lot of different truths, but it doesn't really seem to translate into actual practice of the kind of lives we live because what the way we live our lives is based on is what do I love? What do I think is the good life? What do I long for in my heart of hearts? And I think that is the picture that Paul is painting of life in the flesh. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are inside or outside the church, the common place where these things meet is, what is it that I truly long for in my life? What are the things that have a controlling power over my heart, regardless of my stated beliefs or doctrines? So where do you go from there? <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty depressing picture, right? That's why I want to talk in the second half about life in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. So how do we expose these darker motives, 
we're often so blind to or even have the courage and the power to change from those things and live more purely and wholeheartedly for God? Well, the answer, as Paul lays it out, is defined by what he calls life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. And to understand this part of his teaching, you need to understand a bit of the historical context of what's going on because if you read throughout his New Testament letters, what you realize is there was this ongoing standing debate that he had with a certain group of people in the church, Jewish believers, who argued that if you become a follower of Jesus, you also needed to follow the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And their argument was this, God gave us the law in order to give us guardrails so that we would live righteously. And so if you abandon the law, then it will inevitably lead to a lawless and sinful life. Take away the guardrails, and people crash and burn. (laughs) And so the argument was, we need this law to make us good people. And Paul looked at that argument, and he said, you've got it all wrong. Because what he says is, look in verses 13 to 16. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He begins his argument by saying that there is this fundamental freedom from the requirements of the law because Jesus fulfilled those requirements on our behalf. And Paul says that there is something greater than obedience to the law that acts as our guardrails to holy living and that is walking by the Spirit. It's interesting. He uses this word indulge in verse 13 there. And that's a very interesting word. It's a military term which was used to describe a base of operations or a starting point, like a a military camp, from which forward operations could be uh, conducted by the army. And And so what the use of this military term is describing is you say you have freedom in Christ, and now that becomes like a hook, like a foot in the door. And they say, in my freedom in Christ, that suddenly gives me license to live however I want. In other words, it becomes a backdoor to immorality. Because now that I'm no longer under the law, everything is fair game. I'm not under condemnation. I'm under grace. And Paul says, it doesn't work that way. If you think that God's grace leads to an immoral, lawless life, he says, you don't understand God's grace or what God's salvation is all about. If you look in Romans chapter 7, verse 4 to 6, Paul clarifies, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What Paul is saying is the law by itself gave us no power to change. All it could do is condemn us because we all failed to live by its standard. 
But the spirit who lives in us as followers of Jesus can do what the law could never do, which is enabling us to become actually more like Jesus. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, which is another code for law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What he is saying is we are no longer bound by the law because there is a greater work of God in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of God that can actually enable you to live the kind of righteous life that God wills for you. That's why that picture, I kind of use it hesitantly of that good tree and the bad tree that I showed you earlier. Or sometimes we use the analogy of the good dog and the bad dog or the good nature or the bad nature. The danger in using those type of analogies is it seems to say that the dark side of you and the light side of you are equal. And that's not a, a very accurate picture that's given to us in the New Testament. It's saying that there is something that has fundamentally shifted in our battle against sin. And yet, nevertheless, there is this residue of sin and struggle that still remains in our life. And the truth is, even in the church, there is this constant habit of wanting to turn to rules and laws to try to dictate Christian behavior, even in our day, even at ICC. Um, I hesitated to use this as an example, but I, I feel like it's actually helpful. Scott McKnight, who's a prof here in the Chicagoland area, he, uh, he writes about his opportunity to get to meet this guy, F.F. Bruce. F.F. Uh, Bruce is considered one of the foremost theologians of the last century. Um, wrote some of the most important works that have been used in seminaries uh, throughout the world. He's a British guy. And so he was invited to lunch, and he's, you know, talking and asking him tons of questions. And yet he was kind of wrestling with this whole issue of women in leadership. Um, and he wanted to know what one of the top world-class scholars on the Bible had to say about this issue of women in leadership. So finally he worked up the courage and said, uh, so what's your view? about ordaining women. And this is uh, the conversation that occurred with F.F. Bruce. My question was something like this. Professor Bruce, do you think women should be ordained? His response, I shall remember forever. He said, I don't care much for ordination. But what I can say with regard to the exercise of women's ministries in the church is this. I am for whatever brings freedom in the church. I am for whatever brings the freedom of the spirit in the church of God. His answers seemed so nebulous, so full of holes, so full of problems, and so full of unanswered questions. As I have subsequently reflected it, however, I am sure I was wrong in my puzzlement. His answer is very biblical, very Pauline, very much like Galatians. In fact, his answer is so much like Galatians that his answer must be right. Are we perhaps as guilty of legalism as they were? Do we perhaps also want legal guidelines and Mosaic law? These questions are worth pondering. We must first convince ourselves that God's spirit is a sufficient guide for moral life before God. We must thoroughly grasp God's goodness in his granting us the Holy Spirit as the sure guide to holiness and love. 
To do this, we need to read Galatians once again with an open mind and then proceed to Paul's other letters. This makes really good sense if Galatians is the first of Paul's letters. To see what Paul has in mind there when he speaks of life in the free spirit. Furthermore, it is not that Paul did not have available rules and regulations to appeal to. He could have gone to Moses for some moral guidelines or even to Jesus. He could have appealed to such texts as the Sermon on the Mount or to the specific text in the Old Testament, Be holy because I am holy. He did not, however. And he knew that in not doing so, he was leaving these as options. He did not see the teaching of Jesus as new laws nor would he appeal to the law of Moses as binding on the Christian. Instead, Paul described the essence of Christian living as freedom in the Spirit. I don't think, in other words, we understand how radical this teaching is. The moment we are wrestling with a doctrinal issue, we immediately go, what does the Bible have to tell us about that? Which is important, part of the process. But even as we looked at this issue of women in leadership, there are so many of these areas where we kind of get frustrated with Scripture, isn't it? And wish, why wasn't the Bible clearer on this? Why is it that there seem to be almost contradictory statements being made in different books? And maybe part of the answer, at least is that these were never meant to be timeless, comprehensive rules or laws that bind the church for all time. But what the New Testament is trying to tell us is you have the Spirit of God in you. And within that, there is actually a tremendous amount of freedom that comes with that. But not freedom to live however we want, but freedom to turn us more and more to dependency to Christ and his wisdom, which is with us as a person and not just as a doctrine. I think we have lost that message in the modern church in many ways. And so we say, what is our denominational stance on that? What is the position paper that we hold to rather than what is the spirit of God saying in the community of God's people to us within the freedom we have in Christ? Practically, what does that look like? Well, look at verses 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the theme that I want us to embrace for this coming year. Not so much what are your doctrinal stances on these theological issues, But what is the inner character of Christ that you represent in your own character? Because you really don't need God to hold to a theological position. But you certainly need God in your life to exhibit this fruit in you. It takes an utter God dependence to become the kind of person that Paul is describing here. John Stott is also arguably one of the most influential theologians like F.F. Bruce of this past century. He passed away, sadly, in 2011. Time magazine actually listed him as one of the 100 most influential people of our generation. But before passing, um, what was known to many was that he prayed a certain prayer every morning of his life. And this was the prayer that he prayed. Heavenly Father, I pray 
that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Start praying this prayer every single morning. Commenting on this, Christopher Wright, another theologian, says this about Stott. That was the prayer that John Stott prayed every day when he first woke up in the morning. It hardly seemed surprising then that many people who knew John Stott personally said that he was the most Christ-like person they ever met. For God answered his daily prayer by making the fruit of the Spirit ripen in his life. And what the Spirit of God does above all is to make those who put their faith in Jesus to become more and more like the Jesus they love, trust, and follow. There's a real danger of seeing a list of this fruit of the Spirit and going, okay, I'll love, I'll try, I'll try to be more loving. And like faithful, yeah, patient, yeah, I know I'm not patient. So I'm, the 2023, I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to write it on my mirror. And I'm going to write it on my dashboard and put a sticky note on my cubicle. And I'm going to be more patient. You can't brute force this, okay? We, we got to talk through this. But that's for future messages, okay, about how this actually works. What I just want to leave you with in this message today is, do you even want this? Is, does this frame your Christian journey? Because I would argue this is God's agenda for you. In fact, in a way you could argue this is the entire story of the Bible. Is God making people in his image, in his likeness, so that they might reflect his own character in their lives. My dad is kind of a reticent, uh, not a very expressive guy growing up. He's, I always knew he loved me. I always felt his love for me, but he wasn't always very expressive of that love. And so it was striking to me when he uh, found out that I got into medical school and was going to become a doctor, uh, that in a rare moment he, he kind of uninitiated said to me, uh, I am so happy that you're going to be a doctor and follow my footsteps. And I guess at the time, it, it didn't really, I didn't understand why that was so important to him until I became a father myself. And now I find myself in this very interesting season of parenting children who are largely adults now. And it's, it's a, you could go to the next slide there, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting season of my life to see the ways in which my children, uh, I see myself in my children. Um, many of you know that um, Betty's mother had just recently passed away from cancer. And, um, you know, we, the family's decision was actually that the, not the children so much, but the grandchildren would offer the eulogies, the, the main eulogies for that service. And um, I had actually, one of the grandson, the grandchildren picked was my son, Luke. And I'd never actually 
really heard him do any public speaking before in my life. Never heard him do a book report at school or anything. And the first time I'm hearing it is as he's giving this eulogy for my mother-in-law. And I was sitting there listening and I was so amazed at the, the words that he had crafted to share about her. And I remember there was just this little moment of pride that says, oh, you know, uh, he's got some public speaking chops, you know. And I, I guess, I, I don't know, I, Betty's a great writer, you know. I don't want to take anything away from it, but I, I saw a little of myself in my son in that moment, you know. And recently I had watched this show that kind of blew me away and it just sent me down this entire cascade of thoughts that I had about life and everything. And I, I thought it was a really well-told story. And so I got into this frenzied text chain with Joy and Noel, my two oldest daughters, because I found out that they had watched the show. And it was just amazing being able to text about these really deep issues about life that were revealed through the show and seeing how we came to similar conclusions about the interpretation of the things that went on in this TV show. I also think about my daughter, Noelle, who's in medical school. And it just feels almost like it's a bit of this like secret society, you know, this knowledge of how the human body works. And, and now suddenly she is talking about these things that up to now I was the only one in the family that knew these things. And suddenly she's telling me about cases that she's seeing in the hospital and things that she's learning. And I, 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 it's hard for me to describe the pride I feel and the joy I feel being able to talk about medicine with my daughter. Bethany's sense of humor and her wit. And of all of the kids, I, I see my, the most of myself in my son Judah. It's just his mannerisms, his... His everything, I go, oh, gosh, that is me, like when I was in high school, you know? And I don't know how to describe it, but as a parent, um, there is something so deeply rewarding about seeing myself reflected in my children. And I think that's sort of getting at the heart of what I think the fruit of the Spirit is about. Because what the Bible tells us is that when God looks at the face of his son, Jesus, he always smiles because no one makes him happier than Jesus, the one true, faithful, and obedient Son of God. But Paul says something interesting a little earlier in Galatians. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is God's heart for you. This is his singular agenda for you. Is that he wants to see in you what he sees in his son every time he looks. That is God's mission in your life. And so that has to be our mission in our life. More so than going to the mission field and making crazy sacrifices for Jesus, that's great. More so than the, the church that we attend or the doctrinal positions that we hold of having been on the right side of every debate and theological position. What God longs for you, his father's heart for you, is to see his son reflected in your life.
Let's pray.